Well, good morning, everyone. We'll welcome you to our service. So glad to have you here. I hope this isn't news to any, any of you, but today is Mother's Day. So hopefully that doesn't surprise anybody. So welcome to our worship service this morning. Um, I don't, for those of you that were here or watched uh, two weeks ago, you might remember that there was a bit of a focus on Ukraine and the work that Josiah Venture is doing. And if you remember, I looked at Mel and Amy through the camera and told them how proud we were. And you guys all burst into applause, which was super. Well, let me read to you a note that I got from Amy later that day. Eric, this so blessed us. Mel and I listened with tears in our eyes. Thank you, just thank you for keeping our prayer needs before the TLE. We need them. We need all of you. So they were really touched. And just as I mentioned that as a reminder for you guys that, uh, that they really do count on and appreciate your prayers, knowing that you're praying. So don't forget to pray for Ukraine and pray for the work that Joseph is doing there. So as I was planning the service for today, I was thinking about a good passage to read for Mother's Day. Very often Proverbs 31 is read, which probably may not be all that encouraging to mothers just because it sets such a high standard. So today I picked the words that Jesus' mother said when she found out that she was going to that God had picked her to be the mother of the Messiah. It's called Mary's Song because it's appears in Matthew written in poetic form. And I have recently been learning about the ancient culture and worldview of Bible times. And one feature of that culture was that it's an honor, shame, and patriarchal culture, which of course is the kind of culture that almost every culture had in the history of man and is true even in most of the world today. Um, it was a place where um, a person's status was determined exclusively by either their nationality, their family that they were born into, their gender, or whether they were in, in, in the servant class. Uh, but in whatever class you were born, there was a very small window in which you could go up or down. Uh, and everyone was constantly jockeying for position within the class that they were in. If you remember last week, Pastor Tim mentioned about that story where Jesus went into a, a dinner and he was talking about how people were trying to sit at the head of the place of honor and you didn't want to be at the bottom. That was totally normal in that culture was you were always jockeying to, make, to get the approval of, of your peers and of your culture. So as uh, Betsy reads this Mary's song, be looking for statements about how Jesus was going to turn that culture upside down. Those who joined his kingdom would all have the same status. In Galatians we read, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, all of the same status. So I don't think it's possible to overstate just how radical what Jesus did to that culture. Um, Western culture has been shaped by this Christian view, so we don't think it's so radical. But in other parts of the world and in that time, it was extremely radical what he did. So in that constant, be listening to the prophetic words of a mother who 
was looking forward to the fact that nothing was going to be the same because her baby was born. That's it. Praise the Lord. How my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he took notice of his lowly servant girl. And from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one is holy, and he has done great things for me. He shows mercy from generation to generation to all who fear him. His mighty arm has done tremendous things. He has scattered the proud and haughty ones. He has brought down princes from their thrones and exalted the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away with empty hands. He has helped his servant Israel and remembered to be merciful. For he made this promise to our ancestors, to Abraham and his children forever. So let's worship in song. If you can, please stand and let's sing together.
this morning as we rejoice in and celebrate what we just saying the great love that God has for us. Especially this morning we want to celebrate, um, appreciate mothers, so happy Mother's Day to all of you mothers who are here with us this morning. And if you're new or visiting, my name is Tim. I'm the senior pastor here at Three Lakes Evangelical Free Church and we're glad that you're here with us this morning. If you are new or visiting or just want to communicate anything with the church, there is a connect card in the seat back in front of you. We'd love to have you fill that out. Just let us know who you are, and if there's anything we can pray for you, or do for you, or anything you need from us, you can fill that out. Put that in the box, that, the offering box that's on the back wall. So this morning, at part of our worship service, at the end of our service, we will take communion together, and so hopefully on your way in, you grabbed one of, one of these self-contained communion Cups, um, we will take communion at the end of the service. And a part of our communion services here at Three Lake Evangelical Free Church, we take a, a special benevolence offering where, that we use to meet the needs of the community and people in need around us. And so on your way out this morning at the door, there will be someone holding a tray. The benevolence offering gifts can go in that tray that will be used to meet needs in our community. Regular tithes and offerings, if you choose to give those, can go in the box that's on the back wall of, of the, the sanctuary. So again, we're, we're glad you're here. There's a couple of other things to bring to your attention. So coming up next Saturday, May 14th, we'll have a, a membership class here at the church from 9 a.m. to noon. If you are interested in membership, right, coming to that class does not commit you to you have to become a member if you want to know more about the church or are interested in possibly becoming a member. I'd invite you to come be a part of that from 9 to noon next Saturday. 
Um, and then also this coming Wednesday, we will have our, our fun club carnival. That, that's such a great way for, to celebrate all the work that's gone into the fun club this year, all the growth that kids have made. Um, so there'll be lots of games, and it'll be a way to bless our community. So we, we'd love to have just a few more volunteers to help run games at that carnival. So if you're interested in helping with that, you can contact Ann Epler. Her email is on in the bulletin, or you can talk to her personally. Again, we're glad that you're here this morning. We worship our God. So as you kind of continue to fix our hearts and our minds on Him, would you join me in praying? Father, we, we come and we thank you this morning for the chance to come together as your people in this place, how you've worked in the lives of every person here to draw us to this place for your purposes. We thank you this morning especially for mothers and how you in your infinite wisdom gave us mothers, you designed mothers to to love us and care for us and raise us. We thank you for each mother here this morning, the work they've done in raising and loving their children well. We, we thank you for for mothers. We pray now as we continue the time of worship that our hearts and our minds would be fixed on you. That we would put away other concerns, other worries, other cares this morning. That we would be amazed by your wide and deep and great love for us. Would we look to the cross and see the depth of your love displayed there. And would it move us to worship you and glorify you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to continue worship and song now. We're going to sing the Andrew Peterson song, Is He Worthy? And it occurs to me that um, the lyrics make very little sense unless you understand where in Scripture they come from. So this is a song that was inspired by Revelation chapter 5, which is kind of uh, an interesting book in that it's full of imagery and symbols that um, are a little perplexing to us sometimes. So let me just read um, a few verses out of Revelation 5, and then we'll sing the song and see how it all turns out. So this is the Apostle John. He had a vision of the throne room of heaven. And this is what he wrote. Then I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. By the way, that would be God the Father. And there was writing on the inside and the outside of the scroll. And it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals on the scroll and open it? But no one on heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and read it. So let's stand together and let's sing this song and see how this story turns out. 
stop the light from getting through. We do. Do you wish that we could see it all made new? We do.
of what you've done for us in Jesus on the cross. Because he is the one who is worthy to open the scroll. He lived a perfect sinless life on our behalf. Died in our place for our sins. All other worries, all other cares, can be put away. We can trust that all is well with our soul. We thank you. We praise you for that this morning. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. May I be seated. So this week we're continuing our long running journey through the book of Luke. And so we're about a year and a half into this journey through the book of Luke now, kind of on and off with different series intermixed, but about a year and a half in, we're in Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 35, this morning if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn there, and you may recall me saying if you've been here for a while, but if not, let me remind you, like, why I believe in going through books of the Bible, right? Like, I believe it because like, it holds me accountable, first and foremost, to do what the Apostle Paul said, and like preaching the whole counsel of God. Right? But I can't just kind of pick and choose the parts of the Bible that I like or that I'm comfortable talking about. Like I just preach on whatever passage comes next. Right? So like one of the arguments against this kind of method is that, like one of the arguments that people who are more in favor of more topical preaching would make would say like, well, when you preach topically, it allows you to preach to you know, what's going on in the life of the church. Right? Preach about what's what's going on in people's lives. But one of the things that I've found really interesting as we've walked through books of the Bible together is how often God and His wisdom has used whatever passage we're in to coincide neatly with whatever's going on in the world and in our church. So we saw this just last week. The last week we had Camp Daniel here with us. They were talking about their ministry to people with special needs. And God and His wisdom decided like, to coincide. Like we were in Luke, the first half of Luke 14, right, where God is, or Jesus is talking about the importance of welcoming and ministering to people who are who are different than you and who can't return our hospitality. Right? And people with disabilities certainly fit into that category. There have been a number of occasions where God has seemed to choose to fit whatever's going on in the life of our church or in the world with the passage that we're in. And he's 
a far better planner than I am, far wiser than I am. And so it's been cool to see how God has done that as we've gone through books of the Bible. But this week, I had a moment this week of like, really? Like, how do we end up with this passage on Mother's Day? If you've read the passage ahead of time, you might know why I say that. If you haven't read it yet, let me just tell you why. Right? One of the verses in today's passage says this. If anyone comes to me, that's in Jesus talking. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Right? So it sounds like if you just read that on a surface level, like, hey, if you don't hate your mom, you can't be a disciple of Jesus. Like, Happy Mother's Day. Like, you're dismissed. Right? Like, like, I really thought like, about just pulling the eject button. Like, like just like preaching something, like, like find a verse about mothers and just preach that. And like, I really thought about doing that. But Ultimately, like I just something doesn't sit quite right with me about letting a a secular holiday determine the passage selection in our church service. Right? And look, like I love moms. Like I'm, my mom's here. I love her. I'm grateful for her. Like, I'm so grateful for Vanessa, who's the best mom like our kids could possibly have. I love moms. Right? I'm glad we have Mother's Day to celebrate them. Like, I just don't think we should plan our worship service around the holiday. So here we are. It's Mother's Day. And in God's infinite wisdom, we have this passage this morning. So this passage is like hard under any circumstance, right? Never mind Mother's Day. In fact, Jesus himself knows these words or understand because the very last words of this passage are, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Which is like Jesus' code for, uh, I know this is hard, but... If you understand it in light of who I am rightly, it will make some sense. I think that's the case with this passage too. If we take the time to carefully consider what Jesus is saying here in this passage, if we consider what he says in light of who he is, I think we'll find that this passage is actually encouraging to mothers and to the rest of us. So that's like my hope for this morning, that... You'll hang with me if we read these hard words. And that if you hang with me, like by the end of the service, you'll, you'll see that this is it's a good thing that this passage is in the Bible. So we start out in Luke chapter 14, starting at verse 25. Luke starts out by saying this. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. It's just interesting right off the bat that this passage comes after the passage we looked at last week. The so last week's passage, if you weren't here, was all about humility and being humble. Jesus warned against thinking too highly of yourself and exalting yourself. But is there anything that will ever lead someone into pride, into arrogance? Like it's gaining a large following. Like you see it, unfortunately, lots with pastors. Right? They start to gain a large following and it kind of goes to their head. They become proud and they start to 
define their own sense of importance and significance and identity in the number of people who listen to them and start to impact how they act and how they, they preach. Their identity becomes so wrapped up in the size of the crowd that they can draw that they start to change their message. They become so afraid of, of losing that following they built that they, they start to teach a softer, more watered-down message. They become afraid of saying anything that will drive people away. So they start to change their message. And it's almost as if like Luke here, by having this passage follow the previous one, it wants to show us that Jesus is not going to give in to that kind of pride. He tells us that Jesus is attracting large crowds, like large crowds. They're traveling with Jesus. He's becoming very popular. So what does Jesus do? That to give some emotional, lovey-dovey, like everyone is welcome message? No. Instead he turns to them, he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. You can just imagine the disciples. They're, they're looking around, they're seeing these large crowds, they're thinking like, yes, like finally, like we've hitched our horse to the right cart, push our cart to the right horse, right? Like look at these crowds, like this is going great. Jesus is drawing these huge crowds, like this is awesome. And then Jesus says this, and they must be saying, like, Jesus, what are you doing? Like, we're finally getting somewhere. Like, you're finally getting popular. Why would you say this now? It's like Jesus is trying to convince people not to follow him. There's been a movement among some churches to become what's been termed more seeker-sensitive, right? To teach a, a form of the message, at least initially, that is welcoming, more welcoming to people who aren't familiar with Christianity, right? who maybe talk about the lovey-dovey side of the faith more. Right? But Jesus isn't about that. Like, he gets a large crowd and he says this. And he does that because he wants anyone who's going to follow him to know just how much is required of them. He's not interested in tricking people into following him, only to drop the hammer later. He wants people to go in with their eyes open. Jesus is not saying, don't follow me. But what he is doing is that if you are going to start following me, you need to come in with your eyes open. You need to come in knowing what will be required of you. And ultimately, what we see in this passage that if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, to follow Jesus, you must be willing to give up everything. That's what Jesus wants us to understand. If we're going to follow Him, you need to love Jesus more than anything else. You need to be willing to give up everything to come after Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean you necessarily will be forced to give up everything. Like We see people in the gospel who are following Jesus, who have money, who have family, who have things. Right? It doesn't mean they 
will be required to give up everything. You need to be willing, if it's asked of you by Jesus, to give up everything. It means that followers of Jesus need to be prepared for the possibility that they'll be asked to give up everything else to follow Jesus. That's what Jesus is driving at here in these first couple of verses. And, and in this time, like family was, in a large sense, everything. Right? It was the center of the, the social world for people. Like everything was revolved around family and family dynamics. So when Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, right, such a person can, cannot be my disciple. Like that can cause us to, to gasp. Hate, as the saying goes, is a strong word. When we, in our culture, in our time, use the word hate, we use it in a very emotive sense, a way to communicate a very strong, powerful emotion. But Jesus here, when he says hate, he's not using it in such an emotional sense as much as, the, as in a comparative sense. What he's saying is that in comparison to how much you love me, like it should look like you hate your father and mother and wife and children. Or that like when you're faced with a choice between me and your family, you need to choose me. And look, at that time, choosing to follow Jesus was often a choice between family and Jesus. To follow Jesus was to forsake your family heritage, to renounce all that you grew up believing. And that meant probably your family would disown you, right? So to follow Jesus, especially then, was often a choice between Jesus and family. So he's not saying like, you need to hate your family just for the sake of hating them. But what he is saying is that if there's ever a conflict between loving your family and loving Jesus. Jesus wins. In fact, if you look at, at this very verse in the New Living Translation of the Bible, which is a translation where a translator kind of do their best to give you the sense of what the author's original intent was, they, the New Living Translation translates this verse this way. That if you want to be my disciple, you must, by comparison, hate everyone else. Your father, mother, wife, and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. It's a, it's a comparison, not a just hate for the sake of hate, but in comparison to how much you love Jesus, you should, it should look like you hate these other things. And you may be here, you may be skeptical of that. You may think, oh, that's just one of those darn new age, modern translations. They're just trying to soften the word of Jesus. I see what my Bible says. How can we know that when Jesus says hate, he doesn't mean hate the way we normally understand it. It kind of seems like you're just doing grammatical gymnastics to make this more palatable. The two, two things I would say to that. First, when Matthew records these same words, he records Jesus as saying this. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. 
Now, ancient writers, Matthew and Luke, didn't have the same rules about direct quotations versus indirect quotations that we have now. So when the gospel writers say, Jesus said, dot, 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 they're not saying this is verbatim, word for word, exactly what he said. They're trying to give you the gist of the meaning behind what Jesus said. And so Matthew, when he records what Jesus says here, he records it in a way that makes it clear that the gist of what Jesus says is, you should love me more than your father or your mother. That's one clue that it's more comparative than emotive. But the second reason I'm confident that Jesus means hate in a more comparative way is that in addition to saying you should hate your father and mother, he said you should also hate your own life right, if you're going to be his disciple. But a couple chapters earlier, in Luke chapter 10, Jesus commended an expert in the law for saying that the second great commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. And then he told the lawyer to go and do that. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if this passage means that I'm, I'm supposed to hate myself, to, to hate my own life, then the command to love your neighbor as yourself no longer makes sense. If I'm supposed to hate myself, then the command to love your neighbor as yourself is nonsense. But the command is saying, right, like, not that you're supposed to hate yourself, but you should love Jesus more than yourself. All I have to say, Jesus says everything he says in this passage. Like, to drive home the fact to, to anyone who's thinking about following him, that the cost of following him is everything. And he makes that abundantly clear in the next verse when he says, whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Let me just pause, try to understand that verse in the way that the original hearers would have heard that verse. Because today, like, we wear crosses on our jewelry, we, we have crosses hanging up in our homes, we, we have them on bumper stickers, because right? there's this link between Jesus and the cross. For the people who hear Jesus say this, the cross means only one thing. Death. That's it. The cross was a Roman instrument of death. So let's be abundantly clear. Jesus' point here. If you aren't willing to give up everything, even your own life, you cannot be my disciple. The call to follow Jesus is not a light call. It is not a decision to be made lightly. It's not a decision we should try to trick people into making through emotional pleas. It's not a lifestyle you enter into half-heartedly. To follow Jesus means you must be willing to give up Everything. And Jesus makes that clear from the very beginning to these large crowds. That raises an important question, which is, if following Jesus is so costly, why would anyone do it? 
We see, we see that in the next few verses. We read this. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not, are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule, saying, ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose the king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. We have a picture here. This is called the Tower of David. It's in Caracas, Venezuela. Construction of this building started in 1990. But then in 1994, a, a banking crisis hit Venezuela and construction ceased. You can probably tell from this picture, like, the building was never finished. It has no working elevators, no installed electricity, no running water, there's no railings on any of the balconies. It was far from finished. And yet, despite all that, in the mid-2000s, there was a dramatic housing shortage in Venezuela. And so squatters started to move into this building and live without paying rent. Eventually, the population of squatters in this tower reached 5,000 people. And so because there were no working anything, like the squatter community like, improvised an entire society in this building. Right? Or they improvised basic utility service. There was improvised water reaching all the way up to the 22nd floor. People lived up to the 28th floor, despite the fact that there were no railings. You could just kind of fall out windows. Right? There, were, there were many bodegas, there were barber shops and salons and or even an unlicensed dentist that worked out of this building. But eventually, the, the Venezuelan government that like, took ownership of the building after the banking crisis decided they wanted to sell the building. So they forcibly removed all the squatters and put the building up for auction. But no one bid on it. Not a single bid. But the, but the squatters were still not allowed to return. And so this, this building just sits there empty and valueless to this day. About a couple of years ago, there was an earthquake in Venezuela. And with the top portion kind of suffered a lot of damage. And it now it sits at like a 25 degree angle. Like the fact that it's still standing is amazing. But the reason this happened, right? the reason this building stands unfinished, is that the original owners of the building, the original people who were building it, they were relying on, on future economic success to fund the building. They didn't have enough money outright up front to pay for the building. They expected future economic success and future investors to help fund the completion of the building. But then that, that funding failed to materialize, and they were left looking foolish. So it was a half-finished building that literally couldn't be given away. 
And ultimately, like, the power of David looks the way it does today because the resources of the owners were not enough to pay for its completion. And it looks foolish. That's what Jesus is saying here. That if you're going to start building a building, make sure you have the resources to pay for it before you start. Otherwise, you'll end up looking foolish. Like, like if you're going to go to war, make sure you have the firepower to win. Otherwise, things are going to go poorly for you. But his point in telling those parables in this passage is not to teach us about like, the economics of construction. It's not teaching us about military tactics. Instead, he's saying you should examine the resources that you have at your disposal to see if you have what you need to accomplish what you want to do. And if you don't have the needed resources, then you should make alternate plans. And in Luke, the primary thing that Luke's been talking about throughout this entire section is the eternal life through the kingdom of God. Like that's the one thing that everyone ultimately needs. Like the underlying assumption of the whole book is that the one thing that everyone wants is to enter the kingdom and therefore get eternal life. So Jesus' whole point in telling these parables about unfinished buildings is to invite us to consider whether we, in and of ourselves, have the resources needed to enter the kingdom of God. He's saying that if you try and enter the kingdom of God in your own power, you will be like the builder who started building without having enough money to finish. You'll be like the king who went to war wildly outnumbered. If you try and enter the kingdom of God through your own resources, you will quickly discover that your resources are not enough. Your everything, all that you bring to the table, is never enough to enter the kingdom of God. You may have some great asset. You may be kind and generous and self-sacrificial. You may be a great person. And that's all well and good. But unfortunately, we all also have debts. Debts in the form of our sin. The Bible makes clear that no matter how great a person is, the depth of debt to your sin will always be greater than any asset you bring to the table. Ultimately, the cost of entrance into eternal life, into the kingdom of heaven, is perfection. Which is something none of us can pay. Our everything is not enough. Which is why for everything's not enough in the first place, it's worth being willing to give up everything. If everything you have is not enough to get what you want, then why cling to it? Jesus, Jesus said something very similar a few chapters earlier. In Luke 9, 23-25, He says, Whoever wants to be My disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow Me. 
For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? What good is it to gain the whole world yet lose your very self? Following World War I, Germany experienced what we call hyperinflation. I know we're all worried about inflation now, but that's nothing compared to what Germany went through in 1923. In 1923, in January of that year, in Germany, a loaf of bread cost 250 marks. By November of 1923, though 11 months later, a loaf of bread cost 200 million marks. People in Germany began to burn their money in their fireplaces because it was so worthless and it was cheaper than wood. Like Having lots of money at, in Germany at that time sounds great. But if the money doesn't actually help you get what you need or what you want, like it's not worth clinging to. And those of us here and now in this life, who, who cling to our life and to cling to our desires over against what Jesus has to offer, are like German citizens who cling dearly to their marks in 1923. We're clinging to something that won't get us what we truly want and truly need. We're trying to gain the whole world without, while forfeiting our soul. So we're faced with a choice. We can cling to our own desires and our own motivations. Or we can give it all up and follow Jesus. And the good news is, that when we give up everything to follow Jesus, it's not like we don't get anything in return. When we give up everything to follow Jesus, we get the very best possible thing in return. We get Jesus himself. Jesus doesn't ask us to, to give up, to pay a high price, or to give up everything and give us nothing back. He gives us Himself. He calls us to take up a cross and to give our life to follow Him, but only because, only because, He took up a cross first. Well, because He laid down His life for us first. He did that for us when there was nothing commendable in us. Paul tells us that God demonstrated His love for us in the fact that while we were His enemies, Christ came and He died for us. Yes, we should be willing to give up everything to follow Jesus. But only because He gave up everything to make, up, to make eternal life possible for us. First, He gave us Himself, including vitally His righteousness, His sinless life, so that we could enter the kingdom of God and experience eternal life with Him in the new heavens and the new earth. We see a, a beautiful picture of what it looks like to be willing to give up everything in Philippians chapter 3. In Philippians 3, verses 7 through 11, we read this. To Paul writing, and he says, Whatever were gains to me, 
I now consider the loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of His resurrection and participation in His suffering, becoming like Him in His death. And so somehow, attaining the resurrection from the dead. It is only by receiving Christ, by becoming like Jesus and being willing to give up everything, that we have any hope, Paul says, of attaining to the resurrection from the dead. It is only by loving Jesus more than we love everything else. It's only by loving Jesus more than we love our moms and our dads and our brothers and our sisters and our children that we have any hope of eternal life. We must be willing to give up everything. But when we are, we get Jesus in return. Last week we sang the hymn, the hymn Give Me Jesus. The chorus of that song says, Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. You can have all this world. Just give me Jesus. And it's, it's easy to sing those words, to follow along on the screen and say them from our mouth as they appear. The question that this passage should prompt in us, the passage that that song should prompt in us is, like, are those words true? When we say, you can have all this world, just give me Jesus, do we mean it? Are we willing to give up everything for the sake of following Jesus? Are we willing to say with Paul right, that I consider everything else, all the good things this world has offered, I consider everything else garbage that I may gain Christ? Are you willing to love Jesus so much that all other love in comparison with, like, hate. Like, I know that seems like a steep cost to give up everything. But getting Jesus in return is worth it. So, like, like here on Mother's Day, the best gift you can give your mom today is to love Jesus more than you love her. moms, dads for that matter. The best encouragement I can give you today is that Jesus loves your kids better than you ever will. Like I know you love your kids deep. But if you're anything like me, you're, you're also very aware of all the times you've failed to love your kids perfectly. But Jesus never fails. He loves your kids and He loves you perfectly. 
even when you don't deserve it. That's what he demonstrates by going to the cross for us. That's what we remember ultimately when we take communion. In communion, we remember that Jesus allowed his body to be broken and his blood spilled out to provide a way for our sins to be forgiven. And because Jesus made a way for our sins to be forgiven, we can look forward to a day when we will sit down with Jesus and with all those who are willing to give up everything to follow him to another meal. A meal where we will celebrate and worship Jesus for all that he did for us in the new heavens and the new earth. So if we're going we're gonna to take communion in just a few minutes here, but before we do that, if you're here and you've, you've never trusted Jesus, I don't want to make it sound like it's a trivial thing or a simple thing to follow Him. We just read the word, right? It means being willing to give up everything. If you're here, you've never followed Jesus. The only thing I can assure you is that getting Jesus in return is far better than anything you will give up. Eternal life with Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth is far better than anything you may have to give up here in this life. And for those of us who are here who have trusted Jesus, who have followed Jesus, I want to just go with a few minutes now to consider whether there are areas in your life that maybe you're clinging to a little too tightly. There are things in your life that you haven't been willing to fully give up when it comes to following Jesus. And if there are, I'm going to give us a few minutes to, to repent of those areas. To ask God for help in giving them up. To move forward in becoming a full-fledged disciple of Jesus. And that's the great news of the cross is that we can be confident because of what Jesus did that we're already forgiven for all the times that we've failed to fully give up everything for Jesus. We are forgiven because Jesus lived the perfect sinless life required to enter eternal life. We're going to have a few minutes of, of quiet and Eric's going to come and just play some music for us as we have a few minutes to reflect on those things. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus, that he is such a great Savior, that he is worth being willing to give up everything for. He loves us so deeply, so completely, so perfectly that he was willing to come and live a sinless life and die in our place even when we were his enemies. So God, would we, in response to that love you've shown us, would we be willing to give up anything you call us to give up to follow Jesus? 
We praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus, the night he was betrayed, he, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he, he broke it. That's the picture of his body being broken for us. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. As a, again, a tangible reminder of his blood poured out for us. Because he loved us so deeply, he desired for us to have a way for our sins to be forgiven. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's partake. Father, we thank you for loving us perfectly, for loving us better than we could ever love you in return. 
for loving us better than we could ever love anyone else. We thank you, we praise you for you displaying your perfect love for us and sending Jesus to die on the cross in our place for our sins. Father, would we never take what Jesus did for us for granted? Would we never take it lightly? And as we remember what Jesus did for us, would it compel us, move us to be willing to sacrifice anything you call us to give up? in order to follow after you and be a disciple of Jesus. If there is anything in our lives now that we're clinging to that's preventing us from following Jesus fully, would you take those things away? Would you give us the fortitude to cast those things off? and wholeheartedly and completely follow after Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As you go from here, my hope, my prayer for you, that you would go willing to give up everything for the sake of following Jesus. You are dismissed.